Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. People put a lot of stock into the idea of last words, right? The idea is that if you were aware of your your immediate demise, you would want to communicate something of the utmost importance before you shuffle off your mortal coil. And this is the plot of the greatest movie of all time, isn't it? Citizen Kane, right? I mean, you've had time to see it. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but see it because the whole movie is about this great industrialist, journalist, politician, Charles Foster Kane. And um, the quest to discover what his last words meant, right? What was his famous deathbed word? He, he, he said the word rosebud, and then he breathed his last. And the rest of the film is just journalists trying to desperately figure out what he meant by that confusing last word. Famous last words include words of love for spouses that were left behind. Um, T.S. Eliot's last word before he died was Valerie the name of his wife. And some famous last words are funny. Uh, A murderer on death row was um, placed in front of the firing squad. This is a true story. And uh, he was asked if he had any last requests before he was going to be executed. And he said, yeah, bring me a bulletproof vest. (laughs) And sometimes the last words are spiritual, especially for people like us, people of faith. Harriet Tubman, the abolitionist who worked on the Underground Railroad, her last words were spiritual. They were from a spiritual, in fact. She said as she was dying, swing low, sweet chariot, you know, coming forth to carry me home. Here's a bit of local Ligonier trivia for you. You may know the name Richard B. Mellon, the father of R.K. Mellon here in Ligonier. Richard B. Mellon had a lifelong friendship with his older brother, Andrew Mellon. And the story goes that when they got together, even into their adulthood and late age, uh, they had this ongoing game of, of tag, right? That even as grown men, when they would part ways or hang out together, they would, you know, touch each other on the shoulder, say, tag, you're it, and then, you know, run away. And so when Richard was on his deathbed and his brother Andrew was there beside him in his final moments, Richard was able to reach up, tap his brother on the arm and say, last tag. And then he promptly died. <laughs> I guess that means he won. And as we get further along into the book of Acts, a sense of finality is something that imbues the, the, the speeches and the sermons of uh, the book. By Acts chapter 20, as we'll talk about more in a minute, the Holy Spirit has imparted a sobering truth onto the Apostle Paul, that his life is in mortal danger just about anywhere he's going to go. Because after 30 years of ministry, Paul has been around every region of the ancient world, basically. And everywhere he's met, he's gone, he's made enemies. 
Uh, and so Paul has been beaten and flogged. He's been arrested and thrown in jail. He's been stoned. He's been run out of so many of these ancient major cities in the ancient world. And so Paul is recognizing that he can't really go anywhere without putting the local church in jeopardy. And as he uh, thinks and prays, it's on his mind to go back to Jerusalem. But at the same time, he is beginning to think of the church and what the church is going to look like without him in it. And so in Acts 20 today, Paul is going to have a meeting with a group of Christians that he deeply knows and loves. It's a group of elders from the city of Ephesus, and they this group of elders travel 50 miles by foot, presumably, uh, down uh, to the city of Miletus to meet with Paul one last time. And today in our Acts reading, we get to hear some of Paul's last words to a church that he will not be able to visit in person ever again. It's his last time engaging with the people of Ephesus in person. And so if we believe that last words matter, as we kind of do, um, it may be worth our time, I think it is worth our time, to see what Paul offers to the elders of his church as the reality of his mortality looms large. Um, So let's look at Paul's last words, but let me answer this question for us real quick. Why would a group of elders travel 50 miles by foot uh, to go meet with Paul? Uh, Well, uh, some of it's relational. Paul has three years of ministry in Ephesus. He was teaching and preaching. He was there longer than anywhere else on his 30 years of missionary journeys. Uh, He rented out a public lecture hall after he got kicked out of the local synagogue, and the whole region of eastern Turkey was flocking to Ephesus to learn and study under Paul. And his ministry was so effective in Ephesus that it turned the whole city upside down. The, The local economy, the local pagan culture, all of it was flipped upside down. Because in Ephesus, you may know this, it's the center of worship of the goddess Artemis in the ancient world. Artemis. And, and there was a temple that was built in Ephesus that was literally one of the world's seven ancient wonders, right? It's like the pyramids of Egypt, the hanging gardens of Babylon, the lighthouse in Alexandria, and the temple to Artemis in Ephesus. And as part of the local culture, there was this whole host of craftsmen who would build, uh, they were like silversmiths, they would build these little idols of Artemis to sell to religious pilgrims who were coming to worship, Uh, Artemis was kind of like a Fred Rogers to Latrobe or Andy Warhol to Pittsburgh or Johnny Cash to Nashville or uh, Memphis to Elvis, right? Uh, It was Ephesus and Artemis. They went together um, hand in hand. And so when Paul comes into town and he starts preaching about Jesus's death and resurrection, all of a sudden people are, are not buying idols anymore. And in fact, they're starting to have public book burnings of magic books and horoscope guides. And people stop visiting this temple of Artemis to worship. And so a guild of silversmiths figure out that this new religion in town is bad news for their economy. And so they incite a riot. They incite an anti-Christian riot. They go around town chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they capture some Christians and they take them to the theater and, and they threaten them. And the whole thing is just a total mess. And thankfully, a city manager shows up and shuts down the riot and says, take it to the courts. But... For his safety and for the safety of the church, Paul has to leave Ephesus the next day. And so after three years of ministry, Paul is gone. And what's becoming clear about the Christian faith in general, but also Paul's ministry, is that uh, the Christian message is upsetting the social structures and the power structures and the economic structures of the ancient world. Because to go into a town and say that Jesus is Lord 
is to say that the emperor of Rome is not Lord. And to say that Jesus uh, rose from the dead uh, is to say that you don't need to fear the, the military might of the Roman Empire. And to say that God created this world without um, sort of using stones or rocks, that he's the creator of the stones or rocks, and that gods made from stones or rocks are not really gods at all, is to say that um, Artemis of the Ephesians is not a god at all. And, and so Paul realizes, again, as we said a little bit ago, that uh, after years of mission work, uh, anywhere he goes in the ancient world, there is a massive target on his back. There just aren't that many places left where Paul is not a wanted man. And so when Paul is traveling through this region on his way to Jerusalem for a visit, he can't go to Ephesus. His leaders must leave the city and travel south to meet with him on his way. And once they gather, Paul delivers his sermon, the sermon we read in Acts today, a goodbye address. It's similar in style and structure to other goodbye addresses made by retiring uh, generals and dying philosophers. You know, all the things we're going to read about how I did it right, I gave it my best, I didn't do anything wrong, I took no gold and silver. Like, that's part of the rhetorical piece of all of this. This is a, a special type of uh, homily, as it were. Um, but the real core content of what Paul wants to get across in this sermon today can be broken down in, in two parts. Paul is going to say, I brought you the full gospel and withheld from you nothing. And now I'm passing the baton on. You are the leaders. You are the ones responsible for the life of your congregation. Here's how his sermon starts. And you can follow along in your reading in your bulletin if you'd like. He says this, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring you to you anything that was profitable teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of the repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is outlining in the beginning of the sermon how his ministry to the church at Ephesus was above reproach. Whether he was teaching in a public lecture hall or in a home, he kept the main thing the main thing. And what is, of course, the main thing? Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, note how repentance is a key part of the Christian message here. Note how we have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, not in the abstract, let's paint the word faith on a rock and put it on our front porches or our gardens, but a kind of faith that is real and genuine and rooted in the fact that like, we believe Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he's going to return and, and judge the, the world and set everything right. And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, I gave you everything. I gave you the core message and all of the implications of that core message. I gave that to you. I didn't hold anything back. I gave it my all for three years. But the very next sentence outlines Paul's greater concern. He says, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the gospel will see my face again. That's the, the next line in the sermon. And maybe you've been a part of a church where a pastor announces that they are leaving or the bishop is retiring. Or maybe you've been in a secular setting, right, where the CEO of the company steps down and you're worried about your job or the division, the head of your division that you love and respect announces he's quitting for a new job, right? I can't imagine that the church in Ephesus uh, was going through uh, what was going through their head when they heard this news. I can't imagine. 
because their leader and their patron and their planter would not be able to come back and help them anymore. Um, Paul, you see, is passing the baton along. And Paul knows that the work ahead is not easy. He's led this church. He knows what it's life. And he's passing the baton and he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul commends to his leaders two things. He, he commends them to what? Uh, he commends them to God and to the word of grace. Again, that language is shorthand for Jesus' death and resurrection and his promise to return in the forgiveness of sins. Those three core messages in the entire book of Acts, they're still here. And so Paul commends the leaders over to God and to the Christian gospel, which is able, as Paul says, to build them up and save them when Jesus returns. And so he concludes with one final plea for money. Paul is going to Jerusalem to help them with some financial struggles, and he's asking the leaders of the church for, to, to give an offering to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, which they presumably do. And then all the leaders, they get together with Paul, they kneel, they weep, they say prayers, they hug it out, and they accompany Paul to his ship and say goodbye. And as we'll discover in coming weeks, Paul was right. That when Paul does go down to Jerusalem, he recognizes with a sense of fatalism that things are going to end badly for him. And when he gets to Jerusalem, that's going to lead to his arrest, to trials, and eventually his execution. These will indeed be some of Paul's last words. He says this in his last words to the church at Ephesus. Remember the gospel I taught you. And now the baton for passing along that gospel is yours. And it makes me wonder, you know, if, if you've ever considered what your last words might be. Do you ever think about what kind of legacy you might want to leave with your deathbed last words? If the last words are so important, do you ever stop to think about them for yourself? I'm not going to give you ideas today. You, you can have your own thoughts on this matter. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts would be, but I know what they probably won't be. <laughs> there are a handful of things where I can guess these are not going to be the last words that any of you in, in this congregation speak, right? I don't think any of you are going to say on your deathbed, man, you know, I wish I had spent more time in the office. <laughs> I wish I had gotten those TPS reports done uh, so that my boss wouldn't be so inconvenienced by them. Like, no, none of you are going to say that. Uh, none of you on your deathbed are going to say something like, you know, gosh, I'm just so sad that I'm going to miss the new Marvel movie coming out next month. Or, you know, gosh, I, I thought the Steelers really had a chance this season. I hope God puts ESPN in the heavenly cable packages. Um, nobody says um, for their last words, you know, family, I am dying. And so to honor my memory, I would ask each of you to vote for my favorite Democrat or my favorite Republican in November. Nobody says that, right? So I know you're not going to say any of the, those things. But the reality is, is sometimes people actually do say those things. And we can hear people last last words, and as a pastor, I've seen it, and you've seen it too, that when people are on their deathbed and dying, they're worried about things that are completely ancillary. And I, I won't speak for you, but for me, it makes me sad, and it breaks my heart, um, because these are people who were beautifully created by a God who loves them and knows them intimately, and they were loved, hopefully, by their spouses or their family, 
And as their spirit is departing this world, they're only thinking about the Steelers or politics or the next superhuman, uh, superhero movie franchise. And like that exists in our world. And, and, and you and I, I think, would look at that and say, man, if that's all they're considering as they um, depart from this place, uh, that must not be a life well lived. A pastor connection of mine, um, he's in his mid-70s and he's retired now, but uh, he recently underwent a health scare and his heart was uh, having some real trouble and so he was in the hospital for some time, the ICU was involved. Um, it, it was a brush with death at the time, but he's since recovered, thank goodness. We I like him a bunch. And um, he uh, had the opportunity to kind of debrief and reflect and say, you know, when I had a brush with death, he said there were two things that came to mind. There were really two things. The first thing that came to his mind was this question of um, where would he go if he died? And thankfully, he had been a committed Christian for decades. And so he prayed and said, Lord, I've been a, a, a committed Christian for decades. Could you give me a word and, and assure me of where I'm going? And the Lord gave him one. He testifies to that. He said, the Lord gave me a word that when I died, I would be reunited with my Savior. And uh, that was his first observation is that in this brush with death, uh, as I was looking ahead towards death, the one thing I had on my mind was where am I going to go? And he said there was a second observation that as I was having my brush with death, um, I was considering where I would go when I die and what is next for me. And also, uh, I wanted to hold my wife's hand. Uh, he said those were the two things that were on my head. I said I needed to hold my wife's hand and I was needed a word from God about the afterlife. That's what he wanted. And so as he was thinking about this question of finality and what his final words would be, he wanted assurance about his final destination and he wanted assurance that he was not alone, which really means he wanted, you know, one thing, which was assurance that he was indeed loved. And uh, this is what I think you're going to be thinking about your, as you're composing your last words for yourself. Um, your last words, I think, if you're a Christian and, and you believe what we talk about every week, then you're going to be thinking about um, two things, um, that if you're blessed with a family on this earthly side, you're going to be thinking about those who loved you dearest and nearest, your family, and your heart's going to turn in that direction. And if you are blessed with a God who loves you, which all of you most certainly are, um, your heart's going to turn in that direction as well. I think those will be the things on your heart and minds um, as you eventually come uh, to that great bridge we must all cross. Um, the, the one prerequisite of the resurrection, which is, of course, that we need to die first. Um, and so I want to conclude then with one final word um, as we uh, end our sermon today. I want to reflect on the last words of somebody else. We've spoken at length about the last words of actors and, and brothers and activists and poets and apostles. Um, but what about the last words of our Savior? Perhaps we should consider those as well. And in John 19, as Jesus of Nazareth has been crucified, and as he is dying slowly on the cross, uh, we get his last words. Um, that he has been at this point in John 19 on the cross for hours. He's exposed naked to the elements, not just losing blood and experiencing dehydration and slowly suffocating, but also he's been exposed to the afternoon heat of the ancient world. The only comfort afforded to him, of course, in this moment was the sour wine that was lifted for him to drink from a soaked sponge. And then he takes a sip from this um, sour wine sponge, and Jesus records, John records, that Jesus spoke one final word, and then he breathed his last. 
And so here are the final words of Jesus, but really, um, words is not uh, 100% accurate. In reality, it was just one word that Jesus offered. Uh, the Greek uh, word um, that comprised the fullness of Jesus's last words are, what was this word? Tetelestai. Tetelestai. That was Jesus's last word. That was the last thing he said on earth, tetelestai. And in Greek, the word tetelestai is a word that means it is finished. That's how we would translate Jesus's last words before his death into the English language. We would say that Jesus's last words were, it is finished, tetelestai. And thankfully, this is not like the, the great rosebud moment of Citizen Kane. It's like, rosebud? What does he mean by rosebud? No one's sitting around and thinking, oh, tetelestai, what does he mean by tetelestai? Um, because what Jesus finished is clear for all to see, that the crucifixion was his final act of love. Uh, the great trial in which Jesus fulfilled all of the Bible's foreshadowing and prophecy to become the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. After three years of world-changing ministry, it all came to this, the great act of love which made a way for reconciliation between God and his beloved. By dying a death that his beloved should have died, by taking upon himself the sins of the world, and by living a perfect life in full attunement with God's vision, Jesus expresses his love for God and his love for his people by his death on the cross in one simple phrase. Tetelestai. It is finished. Uh, we might say that just like every human, Jesus had two things on his mind. The love of God, um, as in where was he going to go when he died, and his earthly beloved, uh, the ones whom he was dying for. Of course, you know, to call Tetelestai Jesus' last words is somewhat disingenuous, isn't it? Because it's unfair to extrapolate so much from Jesus' last words when three days later the dead guy is up and speaking again. And so we don't really have last words from Jesus in that regard, and perhaps uh, that is something you can take great comfort in, that the last words of Jesus were not last words, and your last words will not be your last either. Um, but either way, the last words of Jesus in his earthly ministry point to the conclusion of a great mission to reconcile his two loves, the world, the people in it, and God himself. The last words of Paul in our reading today, they do something similar. They commend his beloved friends and ministry partners to God. And the message from both is the same, friends. And it's a message we it is good for us to hear as well. That in life or death, we are commended to seek out transcendent love which we can only find in the word of grace that Paul talks about in our reading today. Um, this is the thing that we are to seek out as mortal beings living on this earth, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, he's coming, to, he's coming again to fix the world, and he forgives all the sins of repentant people. And so today, friends, repent, believe this good news, and receive a love that is stronger and more transcendent than death, a word which will never be the last. In Jesus' name, amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, lay down in grief, broke with the keys, fell on that day, firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ.
Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.